2: Mike Hallen, the senior restaurant and food service analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, today, we're recording from the ICR conference in Orlando, Florida. I'm joined by Bob Wright, the CEO of Pop Belly. It's nice to meet you, Bob. Nice to meet you, Mike. Um, talk to me a little bit about your previous career stops and, and what attracted you to Pop Belly.
1: Yeah, sure. I um, I've got what many would describe as a, a career as an operator in the restaurant space. I started out delivering pizzas when I was 19. For Domino's after my freshman year of college, and uh, I've been in the chain franchise restaurant business ever since. Um, um, A lot of years with Domino's, about a dozen years with Domino's, uh, 16 years with Wendy's over two different stints. Uh, In fact, Wendy's was the company I was with before joining Potbelly. And my last role there was COO, um, and I had a lot of great responsibility, wonderful team, but I led operations and international responsibility development, uh, restaurant technology, kitchen engineering, and innovation was part of my team, and uh, also the uh, support for what was a brand new customer experience department that we built there. So. It's been a wonderful career. When I left Wendy's, um, I actually wasn't actually looking for what was next. I was actually going to go into the franchising business as a franchisee. Um, After all these years, I thought that what a great way to apply that and build a family business with this last cycle. Uh, I also wanted to augment that with some board support um, and and leadership. So Potbelly is a brand that I have loved for over 20 years. And it's a brand that I thought uh, maybe I could add some value to if I had a chance to be a director on the board. And so I started to formalize that point of view. uh, And it was around that time that there was an outreach uh, to talk to me about something a little more meaningful. And, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, there weren't a lot of great franchise deals that were going through anyway. And uh, so uh, the more I looked at the brand and what the company had in terms of potential, the more excited I got about the role of CEO. Uh, came on board in July of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. My CFO, Steve Surlis, was here when I arrived. He he joined uh, earlier that year. And since then, we've just built a, a tremendous team. Uh, really, I would say the best management team the the franchise ever had.
2: No, that's great. Uh, yes, some great career experience, too. I mean, Domino's and Wendy's are, are fantastic. I've been covering those companies for a long time, so... So that's great. And so the team is settled now. You have everybody in place.
1: We do. Uh, you know, you're always uh, expanding. And in, when you're in growth mode, uh, you know, in fact, uh, later next month, we, we spend time every year talking about our talent organization and uh, invest a, about a day and a half as a senior team looking to the future. So there's always that. But I'm, I'm thrilled with the team at the senior level. Uh, we've made uh, significant advancements in talent and, um, and skill and, and really filled out our team at the director level and the VP level as well. Uh, the most recent add to our senior team was Lynette McKee. We hired her just a few months ago. She's our Senior Vice President of Franchising. And that was really the last big uh, position that needed to be filled. And, and it was the right time uh, as we announced uh, this morning you know, with the acceleration of our deal activity. I wanted somebody of her caliber to be able to lead the franchising
2: efforts. And talk to me a little bit about uh, about that acceleration of the deal activity.
1: Yeah, we uh, you know we we had always seen I had always seen the power of franchising and growing the brand. Uh, but frankly, we had to invest the first couple of years in getting our house in order with our company operations, re-accelerating sales growth, and all the work that we did against our five pillar strategy, especially the initiatives that underpinned it but all the while keeping an eye on what we would do to, to start to build more units and do it with franchisees that would want to help grow the brand. Um, the, the efforts towards our market planning and our franchise recruitment and franchise selection criteria and the actual franchisee selection work that we do, that is where Lynette has tremendous experience, and it's where uh, I wanted to have a senior leader that was focused on that. Other companies, you'll find all of the development functions are, are reporting up to one development leader. That's not the way we have it structured today uh, because sales are so important and that franchisee selection is so important. I mean, gosh, I remember, I remember my days with Domino's and, and with Wendy's. Uh, you know, you've got founders that were making those decisions about who they welcomed into the brand. And great franchisees will make the brand stronger for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, I know franchises in other brands where they're in their third generation of ownership in the same family, and they're, they're very important parts of that. So we see that as really important. As such, before even hiring Lynette, uh, we took all the execution-centric elements of our, of our development responsibility, things like franchise real estate selection and support for them making those choices. The engineering and and architectural work uh, that that's necessary, the construction support training, all that falls to our chief operating officer now. Those are very execution centric responsibilities, and that's what he loves, and that's what he's excellent at. Um, it means that you know here we are in the beginning of 2024. Lynette is focused on sales that will deliver 25, 26, and beyond units. Uh, Adam, Adam Noyes, our COO, is responsible for the, the opening of the units that were sold that are going to get built this year. Um, so that clarity and, and role clarity, it's, um, it's something I learned is really important for us as a team, and uh, we're excited about
2: how that breaks up. Okay, cool. Um, where is the change strong geographically, and, and who's your core customer? um we are one of the
1: great things about potbelly it was attractive to me when i came on board is we're in 33 states uh and we've got decent penetration in a lot of those states uh we are geographically across the country we're literally a nationwide brand from seattle and portland all the way to new york city and from you know the northern midwest the canadian border practically all the way south of san antonio on your way to south texas so the brand travels well. You'll find a lot, of, um, a lot of chains our size, 420, 450, 500 units are still super regionals attempting to prove that they can grow. Our, our uh, strongest penetration is where we started uh, in the Illinois market, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, Virginia. You go into Texas. We've got a very strong presence in Texas. But throughout the Midwest, and even throughout the, um, uh, the, the, the bordering states of the Midwest, we, we tend to do really well. We do not have a strong penetration in the Southeast or on the West Coast. Um, now, as we've shared with a lot of our development deals here in the last 12 months, uh, we've been signing a lot of development deals in Florida, um, and we think that that's really common to begin your Southeast development in the state of Florida and then grow from there. Uh, We don't have any deals yet in in Georgia and some of the other Gulf Coast states. Um, The behavior of that consumer suggests that we're not worried about that at all. It's just kind of natural. You asked about our consumer. Uh, We are a fast, casual, sandwich-based restaurant concept. And I often complete that sentence, uh, with all due respect to our competitors, but in a sea of sub-shops. So we're not a sub-shop. We're a a fast, casual restaurant option with a sandwich-based menu. Uh, some things make our menu very different. Our sandwiches are, you know, handmade and toasted at 500 degrees. Uh, so this is a, this is hot food. Our our soups complement our sandwiches well because people are looking for that more substantial meal, but at a great value. So our core consumer is the fast casual consumer. Um, you you find them uh, trading with Panda Express and with Panera and with uh, Chipotle. Um, of course, our consumers use McDonald's and Wendy's and Subway. All consumers use those. Those are ubiquitous, ubiquitous brands. But that the occasion that enters your, your decision-making process as a customer is one that, that appeals to somebody looking for a higher quality experience, willing to pay a fast, casual, average check price, uh, but also wanting to have an experience that they enjoy. One of the great things about Potbelly is the in-shop experience. Uh, we talk often publicly about how strong our digital business is, and, you know, it's been in the high 30 percent, approaching 40 yeah, percent mix. it's strong. Yeah. But well over half of our customers cross the threshold to get their food. Some of them take it out to go, uh, but the dining room experience is a big part of it. And we protect that. Uh, we think that's a big difference maker. When you want to meet your friends for lunch, when you want to, you know, stop for, even if it's a quick, convenient lunch with a loved one, family or whatever on your way to shopping trip or something, you don't always just want to run in, grab it and take it somewhere else. Um, and so that balance works well for
2: us. Okay, cool. Um the recovery in in the chain same-source sales since, tw- uh, you know, since 2019 has been really impressive, uh, particularly beginning in the fourth quarter of 22. What fueled that jump?
1: Yeah, our, I'll take you back to our five-pillar strategy for the top-line growth. Uh, those The first four pillars of the five uh, are rooted in that unifying objective that we started with back in 2020, which is traffic-driven profitability. It was my firm belief that... The, the business health has to be determined on some really fundamental and simple things to understand. Uh, and we had been losing traffic for years, uh, pricing many of our customers out of position. And so the work that we did on the menu where we resized the sandwiches, we introduced the skinny size, we really put a spotlight on our pick your pair uh, the, the work that we did operationally, that was early going with Adam when he came on board, uh, focused on throughput, cleaning our shops, uh, tightening up our staffing, you know, really, um, exciting things to operators like me, but kind of boring to those that aren't true restaurant folks, putting a labor guide in place. Um, you know, we didn't have an hours based labor guide in place pre pandemic. And so, uh, you know, you often think of that as a labor savings tool, which it does have some efficiency advantages. But if you don't guide to the proper staffing at every shift every day, what tends to happen is you tend to overstaff when it's more convenient for the manager. And you might find you're understaffed on the weekends and the nights and and things like that. So um it's the it's the, i think the balance of that operations and marketing focus that started to really generate some momentum for us and we've enjoyed continuing it through 2023
2: uh how are you looking to drive same store sales growth this year
1: it's more the same um you know i i uh, we get asked a lot are you are you still looking at low hanging fruit we don't really think about it that way but it's early innings still Um, The work that we did on digital, that's the fourth strategy pillar. Uh, And right after we did the new menu, we also rebuilt our tech stack completely. New app, new web, new loyalty engine, new payments uh, systems that were put in place. And we've just continued to invest in that. Perks, our Perks loyalty program uh, has been a major driver of growth for us. We know that our Perks consumers visit us at a meaningfully higher frequency level. Uh, We know that when we get engaged with them, they really love the Perks engagement. There's a lot of um, uh, unpolished brand love for Potbelly, and some of it is latent. So bringing customers back to the brand that they at least are familiar with or at one point were great users of uh, reminds them just how much it it works for them. And, And if you go back to my answer to one of your earlier questions, when you begin to think about that fast, casual experience that you're looking for, Pushing our brand up into your uh, top of mind awareness is where we find the most success. Even our place digital media is mostly awareness driving. Um, it's not, you know, call to action type of, of marketing. Um, so what we've done with Perks and our ability to continue to lean into our, our Perks loyalty program is a, is a big driver of that. Catering has continued to grow for us. Um, The way we operate the shops is a big part of our our optimism around sales driving. Something a lot of people don't know about Potbelly is we were always built with two lines. There's a front line that you know if you go through a Potbelly, you're going to go through the line order. We call it the load station because we're loading the oven. That's that first level of engagement. There was always a back line. All Potbellies were built with a second line that was designed to be for catering. Um, And, you know, if you if you think about when we started into the digital business we said well we've got this back line many cases unfortunately they'd kind of been mothballed so we got all that equipment operating and working now all of our digital business goes through the back line so we're not facing capacity constraints because we're overburdening what was our production system we've we've got a lot more capacity to go using the back line for more digital and it's left the front line open it also gave us, in addition to that labor guide I told you about, we also re-engineered our positioning guidelines. So not only do we know how many people need to be in the shop, we know which line to best put them on so that those customers are, are getting the best experience. Um, we've recently, in 2023, began rolling out our Potbelly Digital Kitchen. So we already have that line, but we've digitized and started to digitize, and, you know, on, an, on a rollout basis, the back line. So all of the orders that come in from all the various channels get fed to the back line in the right way. So there's, you know, look, a lot of detail there, but throughput, operations excellence, additional marketing investment, perks loyalty. That's, that's why you, you hear confidence in our voice about how we can keep top line traffic growth going. And you know we watch it. We compare our. We subscribe to data sources like everybody does. Um, Black box is the one that we use, and we so, can. Com- yeah, so we compare our our traffic growth compared to the fast casual segment. And for the last you know year and a half, couple of years, fast casual's been a lot closer to flat, um, not unhealthy like QSR, where post pandemic they started to lose traffic, but we're growing traffic. So that means we're not just growing our business, we're, we're gaining share. Um, and it's really healthy.
2: Yeah. It's, it's impressive. Um, I'd imagine, you know, the second make line served Chipotle really well during the pandemic. Right. And it's really, uh, helped them grow their digital mix. Was that a big driver in, in the strength of your digital sales?
1: Uh I think it's a big enabler to do it well. Um, yeah, and I think that uh it, it allowed us to keep focus on the front line too, so that we didn't do ourselves harm while we were building the digital business. Um I'd give the digital assets a lot of credit too. Uh the rebuild of the app and the web, smoothing that interface, continuing to invest in it. And um, all of our promotions have a a digital skew and a digital um, and and a perks loyalty program uh, leaning to them. For example, uh, the underground menu was kind of a potbelly, cultural, important element for years and years and years. But you would go into a shop and try to order something off the underground menu, and maybe that employee hadn't worked there when they were familiar with it. So we've digitized the underground menu. It's only available in the app. Um, and because it's in the app, we now train for it. So we know how to execute. You can still walk in and order lucky seven, but, um, it, it really is kind of digital centric. Um, and we also, we further enhance the customer feedback mechanisms that we have in place. So we're watching very closely how those digital customers feel about their experience We know that on order ready on time and accuracy is absolutely critical for them. And it doesn't always break the top five for the in-shop customer. Uh, So those, you know, those details of how we operate are different.
2: Uh, Excuse me. Um, How much inflation do you see this year in your commodity basket? And how much price do you intend to take?
1: That's one of the things I'm really proud of on the pricing. Um, Part of the rebuild of the menu back in 2020 that was implemented in the summer of 2021 uh, put us in a great place for what, what we all saw in the inflation from labor and commodities. And we did take a lot of price. We have been very careful, though, to take price to offset inflation and no more. Um, part of that's rooted in what we discovered when I got here anyway, was we had a, such a significant value problem with our consumer. I was determined never to create that again. Um, so going forward, we're going to maintain that same strategy. We will take price to offset inflation. We think most of our inflation in 2024 will come from the labor line. And while that's not quite back to our forecast anyways, and it's not quite back to traditional levels, it's getting mighty close, um. You know, and and you're talking low to mid single digits in labor inflation, food inflation. We think for us in particular has stabilized a great deal and, and probably be flattish, uh, at least for the near term. We've got a market basket that includes every protein, so we we spread our
2: risk that way. Okay, um, 2024 restaurant level margin guidance, uh, 16 over uh, you know 13.4 to 13.9 uh, in 2013. So pretty significant. Uh, expansion there is that all from sales leverage, price increases, and in the digital kitchen, or are there other levels levers that you're pulling?
1: It it includes those things for sure, and and leverage is the the healthiest way to get margin expansion, of course. But uh, I mentioned that labor guide. Uh, we've done some work there to find efficiency because we know where we where we were investing labor. We continue to see that we have a an evergreen initiative uh, called Cost. If you if you can imagine in your mind's eye, the S is actually a dollar sign just to keep everybody on their toes. And we set a target for wringing out efficiency in the supply chain and other purchasing that we do, other, uh, other costs that we have. We, we cracked open all of our leases during the pandemic. And frankly, we continue to work uh, aggressively with our landlords. We've got a leader at a, at a senior level who's focused on our leases. As the brand's gotten healthier, we see that leverage with landlords. Um, they like us, they like the, the, um, the strength of the brand and the ability to, to build their portfolio of real estate with that. So it's a little bit of all fronts. I think we've got 150, 200 basis points or so to go to get to our 16% number this year. And it will come through those, those areas, right? So um, a little more labor leverage, some top line le- just driven overall leverage, and then uh, continued efforts in the occupancy and some, non, uh, some other fixed costs.
2: Greg, what's the current split between company-owned and franchise locations, and, and where do you think you know, the sweet spot is for your chain?
1: We're still more than 80% company-owned. Uh, we did refranchise 33 units last year, um, and then you know, we, we grew a few new units through franchising. But our focus is on franchise growth. That's the fifth pillar is franchise-driven growth. Um, we've announced publicly we think we're a 2,000-unit chain in the long term, eight to ten years, uh, and almost all of the growth to get there will come through franchise development. Um, we'll still we're still willing to refranchise a few more units. We originally said we'd be willing to refranchise up to 100, and probably still up to that number. But uh, the pacing it's not important for us to race towards that goal. We'll refranchise if it catalyzes a development deal that we get very excited about. So if you, if you finish that story all the way out in the long term, we're 85% franchise and
2: 15% company-owned. Gotcha. What are you doing with the cash on the refranchising?
1: Well, you know, it's not, candidly, it's not that much cash given the, the units that we've sold um, and uh, where, you know, where they may see extra development. But um, any capital, our capital allocation strategy is to, to deploy capital for growth, um, there, there's still opportunities for us to lead maybe with uh, some of the the unit-level prototype development. We would build one or two of those to prove that path. If there's an opportunity to do some refresh and remodel work, we would use capital for that. Uh, you know, the digital work that we've done um, requires some capital to continue to be invested in that area. Um, but, you know, that's the beauty of, of what happens with the, uh, you know, the, the – uh, capital light model that we do with franchising is we simply don't need that much, not in the near term.
2: Yeah. So the 10% unit growth, and, and there's a lot of interesting pieces to the story and and uh, it seems like it's really moving in a good direction here. Um, but 10% unit growth in 24 does seem high considering you haven't really grown for a few years. I'm sure the same store sales growth is definitely motivating uh, franchisees to expand. Uh, who's going to open the most restaurants this year? Is it the company? Is it current franchisees? Is it new franchisees?
1: Oh, it's franchise. I mean, there'll be some current franchisees that build, but it's, th- that's why we've been so transparent about the number of deals that we've done and the number of, when I say deals, franchise development deals that we've done and the number of units that are under commitment to be built. Um, and I think you, our, our desire is to have everyone understand that those deals begat units, and the units, uh, you know, build out the the population of shops. It will be somewhat backloaded in 2024, because our deal traffic was somewhat backloaded in 2023, and it takes about 10 or 11 months to get your first one up and running. Um, we have some really excellent developers that will be building multiple units next year. Um, there probably will be, you know, maybe. Uh, low single digit number of company units that, you know, that we see could be potential for us to open. Uh, but no, it's it's almost exclusively franchise development. And you're right, 10% is, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a great year for us. Um, we've been asked a lot throughout 2023, do we want to adjust that target? Uh, you're changing that guidance. And we haven't, and we have it for a reason, because we can see into that pipeline. I shared with you structurally a couple minutes ago, about how Lynette's focused on deal activity and Adam is on the execution side of things. So we can see the real estate activity, we see the engineering work that's being done, and the amount of support that we're providing on all of those, all of those elements of development gives us confidence that we won't stub our toe too often. A very simple example, there's a lot of talk out there from some developers about the permitting issues that they're having. We require that you do a site inspection report before the lease is signed so that you uncover things that become permitting issues. And it's a couple thousand bucks to do that every time, but it's a couple thousand dollars that provides, you know, kind of an insurance policy against delays in the future.
2: Okay, great. Uh, Are you confident in your ability to select good sites?
1: We are. Yeah. I mean, that one of the great things about having so many company locations, we have all that data and today the mapping software and the technology available to analyze that data um, and it's it's one of the things we provide our franchisees say they love that we're this uh, we're this forward thinking and we're this supportive of them so we provide once a franchisee signs their development territory agreement we provide them with a targeted trade area map where those green circles are that they turn their uh, broker network loose to go find sites the worst version of that in the past was the brokers would sell locations to the franchisee, and they'd get them excited about a certain location. They usually sell off of inventory, and they would push things that, that looked good to them. We're empowering the franchisee to not only search in the targeted trade areas, but because we do the trade area mapping for the entire development territory, they literally have their broker network searching for all of the sites at the same time. That's why I mentioned a second ago that you know we know we'll have franchisees build more than one, because you don't have to do them uh, in sequence. You you know if you've got two or three that are starting to fall, take all the leases and and you can develop those. So yeah, we've we're we're providing an outsized level of support for the development needs, and that's a lot of where our confidence comes from.
2: Great. Yeah, they say a uh, bad sight is the gift that keeps on giving. It so. does.
1: Yeah, and this brand's experienced that. Look, we've. We've talked to a lot of, uh, franchisees and even analysts and investors about, you know, what happened after the company went public and, you know, you can point to real estate as a part of that.
2: Yeah. You get that wall street money and wall street wants you to, to ramp up unit growth. And, uh, yes, often, often it doesn't go well. Um, all right, cool. How big are the units and, and how much do they cost to build?
1: Average cost uh, is still about 650. Uh, that's what it was pre-pandemic. Uh, we're, we have opened franchise locations in 2023 for less than that. Franchisees, that's one of the great things about franchisees too, is they're just as tight with their investment dollars as, as anybody. And so they, they actually help us push that down. Um, Now, there's been a lot of talk about the inflationary pressure in the construction world from both contractors, subcontractors, materials, and so on. Some of that, I think, is coming back a little bit, but um, potbellies were traditionally built 2,500 square feet and bigger, uh, and we, frankly, think that's too big. And so uh, we're targeting a a prototypical size more like 1,800 feet. And we have some franchise sites that have been approved that are smaller than that, that we think are going to work really well for us. So we can offset what would have been inflation on that investment cost and push that maybe higher than 700 and, and keep it uh, under wraps and in, in, in that 2 to 1 sales to investment ratio. So at a 1000003 and $650, we are still at 2 to 1. 16% margins that we've talked about this year provide some nice returns for the franchisees. The other thing I'd emphasize is on those margins too. Our margins um, at 16% is a blended average of the company, but most of our franchise developments in the suburbs now, and so the occupancy costs are lower than our blended average. So they they see upside in the margin model even beyond what we publish publicly.
2: Okay, good stuff. Um, what are you seeing from the consumer right now, and uh, what are your biggest concerns moving forward?
1: Uh, Well, it's, uh, you know, my biggest concerns are typically in the consumer and, you know, what are those macro trends? Uh, So what are we seeing? It's surprisingly resilient. Um, And uh, I do think that, you know, the the, the promised recession that never came in 2023 is always looming out there at some point, but it's our job to grow and prepare and be, be as valuable an option as possible. Uh, I think there's a reason that fast casual continues to grow at the fastest rate in the restaurant segments, um, and I think our ability to continue to grow faster than that rate is is still within sight for us. Um,
2: so, what is it? Is it value for dollar? Is it what? What, what is it? That's do you think driving the the sub segment in general?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, I think fast casual in general is still driven by quality and value, um, and it's not price value necessarily, but it's it. Tell you there's an interesting element to the value equation for fast casual that often gets overlooked if you look at average check across qsr fast casual and uh casual dining it looks like sort of three natural steps if you look at the average eater check however in fast casual compared to qsr the the delta between those two categories is only about two dollars and so what i think the, the natural flow towards fast casual of consumers in general is customers are smart and they figure this out and they're like, I get a significantly better feel for the food, a better quality, more portions for a couple dollars. And when the fast casual consumer, our core consumer is that fast casual consumer in their $100,000 household income range. That $2 is uh, totally palatable. Um, add to that, that that as a segment and us as a brand, we, we have lower frequency than you find in QSR as well. So uh, we're not nearly as vulnerable to a little bit of behavioral adjustment by our core consumer. They're simply not going to pull out a, a belly frequent visit out of their, you know, whatever their monthly rotation is. Like a fifty thousand dollar a year consumer who's going to a drive-through breakfast, you know, twenty times a month, uh, they might pull back two or three of those. Well, geez, two of those is a ten percent decline in that business. So we're not as vulnerable to those dips. Um, so I think we're in a good spot. I think our consumers in a good spot. I'd like to see I'd like to see this uh, credit card thing kind of level out a little bit after the holidays. See if people can keep the jobs market going. And use some of that income to pay off some of that debt. They'll they'll maintain a healthier lifestyle and, and keep coming to Pop Belly.
2: Cool. Um, now let's get to the important stuff. I have not been to a Pop Belly. I'm ashamed to say. Uh, so I'm gonna have to get there maybe then uh, next time I'm in the city or, or in DC. Uh, what should I order? What's your favorite sandwich on the regular menu? And what's what's uh, what's the one to get on the underground menu? Well, listen. Uh, you you got to start with a wreck. Um, it's,
1: you know, it's a, it's our number one selling sandwich and it's, it's number one for a reason, been around for a long time. My personal favorite is the Italian, which is right up there in the top three as well. Um, but I tell you, I've been shopping the menu a lot myself. I got on a chicken salad kick here recently. We make our chicken salad, and our tuna salad every day. Um, do not skip the cookie. Uh, okay. If you're, even if you're, you know, trying to be good that day, don't <laughs> skip the cookie. I promise it's the best sugar cookie on the planet. Um, nice. and our oatmeal chocolate chip is our number one seller it's it's outstanding people love our shakes hand-dipped ice cream milkshakes made from scratch so um yeah you you, you just can't go wrong um look at the menu and see see what kind of grabs your attention and go from there the underground you asked about that yeah. Lucky seven takes the four meats that uh, are on the Italian and the four meats that are on a wreck, And there's only one of those meats that we have in common, which is the ham and puts them together. So you got seven meats on one sandwich. <laughs> um, you might want to try a skinny size in that. Okay. cuz there's a lot of meat. it's yeah, so Delicious.
2: That, that sounds, that sounds fair. Uh, all right. You're making me hungry. Um, this is great. Um, where can the audience go to find a nearby potbellies? bellies? Um, what social media platforms uh, is the brand big on?
1: Uh, you'll find us a lot on, on the, the big ones, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we've got some CTV that's, that's getting out there in some of our bigger markets. Uh, so you'll, you know, if you're a YouTube television watcher, you might start to see some of our ads there. Uh, but those will be the places where you'd find
2: us. All right, great. Um, yeah, thanks again for doing this. This is a, this is a exciting story. Uh, hopefully, you know, once your market cap gets a little bit bigger, maybe you will be on my radar for, for coverage, you know?
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Great to spend time with you.
2: Yeah, it was fantastic meeting you. Uh, thanks to our friends at ICR for putting this together. Uh, and a big thanks to the audience for tuning in. If, uh, if you like the episode, please share it with your colleagues. Check back next week for a discussion with John Sawinsky, the CEO of Modern Restaurant Concepts, which includes two fast casual chains, Modern Market Eatery, and Qdoba.